Hey, it's so great to be here with you. My name is Jesse Lusco, and I'm just so thankful to have you here this Sunday morning. And uh, I just want to go out of my way and, and, and really be deliberate to say, you know, if you don't typically come to church and maybe somebody brought you, maybe a friend brought you along this morning, uh, I just want you to say, I just want you to know that we're glad you're here and that our goal is just to be a place of warmth and welcome. We want to be the kind of place where you can belong before you believe or behave. And so you're welcome here. You are wanted here. And uh, we're kicking off this new series. We've titled it Unrivaled, Unrivaled. And uh, essentially what the concept behind this is that something is going to dominate your life. Something is going to have your allegiance Something will capture your affection. There's something that's going to grab your attention. Something that's going to be the predominant thing in your life. That it will take your thoughts. It will dictate what you do, how you feel, how you act. That there's going to be something in your life that that is the the predominant thought, the predominant idea that, that... affects how you treat other people. There's going to be something that influences you, something that grabs your passion, something that possesses you. It could be something really obvious that everybody sees as an issue, everybody sees as a problem, like an addiction, where you're willing to cheat and steal from those closest to you just to get that fix, to get that buzz. It could be something uh, less obvious. It could be something like your family, like those closest to you. Maybe that's your purpose for living. Maybe that's where you obtain your value from, your meaning from. And because of that, you feel this need to control everything and to maybe sometimes be naggy or or stifling or suffocating. And and, and, and the children in your household, maybe sometimes you're you're, you're so interested in their well-being and you're so interested in seeing them thrive, but maybe it's because of a a desire to feel like you're vindicated, like you're justified. And, And the thing that you love most, you end up alienating. It's a tale as old as time. It could be your finances. It could be your bank accounts, your stocks, and your bonds. Maybe that's the thing that's constantly on your mind and you're constantly evaluating and looking at other people based on uh, how much they're worth, what they're wearing, what they've got. And you're constantly looking at those who have more than you and and, and you're thinking, you know, uh, just in these terms of comparison and, and weighing everybody on these scales could be a romance and you die a thousand deaths to think of that person leaving you. Something is going to dominate your life. If Jesus doesn't rule in your ring, something else will. But the message of the gospel is that when we were in the midst of our insurrection when we were in the middle of our infidelity, when we were caught in the act cheating, when we'd been so disloyal, when we were deserters, rebels, runaways, carrying out our private mutinies, 
The gospel says that the king came and died for the criminals. That the ruler gave his life for the rebels. And when we'd been unfaithful to him, he was faithful to us. And that message swept across Asia Minor and it captured the hearts of people living in this little area, modern-day Turkey. And it went up the Lycus River Valley and it it captured these people's minds and it spread out from Ephesus. And and 2,000 years ago, it was on fire. You could say that this message was taking names. It was sweeping like wildfire, just controlling people, grabbing their loyalties, changing them, possessing them. But then, like always... Some people see a trend really taken off and they kind of want to get in on that action. They want a piece of that game. And so what the book of Colossians really is about is that these other guys, these sideshows, they start coming in, these philosophical, religious, Gnostic dudes, they creep in and they see what's happening and they want a little piece of it for themselves. And so they start coming to these Colossian Christians and they say, hey, you got Jesus. Yeah, you got him. You got this this Savior, this Messiah, this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But let me just tell you, it's kind of down here. They basically say that Jesus is the first Mortal Kombat character you unlock. But that if you play long enough with him, you can upgrade. And that there's this whole pantheon of of emanations and these different deities and these different gods. And you've got to get the right button combo if you want to bypass the boss and get to the next level. Level up. So they're saying this, and, and isn't that how religious people can so often be? Trying to make you feel inferior. Trying to make you feel like you haven't got it going on. Like, oh yeah, you're down on level one. That's good. That's real nice. But, eh, I already beat the game, sucker. <laughs> And that's essentially what these Gnostic guys, they're coming in and they're corrupting the gospel and they're trying to mingle it with all these other thoughts, these other ideas, making people feel small, making them feel like they don't have enough, like they got to do a little more, be a little more, go a little more, think a little more, meditate fast, get these legalistic laws, get these things going on. But then this message gets dropped on the message board. Paul chimes in and gives his two cents and he comes and he says, hey, I just need to let you know, BT dubs, Jesus is uncontested, undefeated, undisputed, reigning heavyweight champion of the world. He is unrivaled. Don't let anybody cheat you. Don't let anybody rob you. Your game is complete in him. And so that's why this letter was penned. It's a letter from an imprisoned preacher in Rome writing to a conflicted church in a town called Colossae to let them know that there's one ruler, that there's one king of the ring. And if you would just lean in, if you would just listen Throughout this series, if if you would hear the pages of this book, I can tell you it will change your world. When I was 16 years old, I read the book of Colossians for the first time in my bedroom. 
and nothing has ever been the same. I can honestly tell you that these truths, they gripped my heart. And and Paul, he portrays Christ in such an exalted light, and he speaks more about the nature of Christ, almost more eloquently than anywhere else in the Bible. If you listen to this book, I'll tell you, he will possess your heart. He will possess your heart. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you're not a God who's indifferent. You're not a God who's detached and far off, but that you are interested in our lives. You're after our hearts. You're not looking for rules and rituals and and, and these traditions and this fakeness and this pretense, but what you care about is our deepest loyalties, our deepest affections. I'm convinced that you're the one who crafted us. You're the one who purposed us. And at the end of the day, you know what's best for us. So we pray that we'd hear what you have to say to us through your word. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you look with me in the book of Colossians? It's a letter from a guy named Paul to some Christians in a little town in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, called Colossae. We're going to read it together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. The faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel, that's come to you in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit, growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understand God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who's also told us of your love in the Spirit. The first truth we're going to take out of this text really is about the author himself. It's just verse 1, just like the, the first word of the book. You look down in your Bible, you see Paul, right? Paul. And so the first thing we're going to really extract is just something from Paul's bio. If you were to flip over the book, open up the dust jacket, and see about the author, uh, what you'd read is, is really this, that the worst enemies can make the strongest advocates. The worst enemies can make the strongest advocates. We spent our entire last series and. If you uh, weren't here for that series, if, if you're joining us for the first time, so stoked that you're here, so glad that you made it. You can check out the, the podcast, ReasonChurch.com. We're able to put all of our messages up there online for you. Super easy. But our entire last series was essentially about how the religious elite were the ones who murdered Jesus. That, that the ultra-conservative group, the ones controlling everything and, and, and living these opulent lifestyles and, and, and judging everybody, they were the enemies of Christ. They were the ones who beat and abused his closest friends and followers. And what's amazing 
is that the author of Colossians was one of them. Paul the Apostle used to be Saul of Tarsus. And if you were to look at his bio in the book, if you were to look to meet the author, you'd read things like this. In the book of Acts, it says, Saul made havoc of the church, dragging both men and women and throwing them into prison. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the church, asked permission to go to Damascus that he might take Christians and bring them to prison back in Jerusalem. It really reminds me of Terminator. Okay, that's what it makes me think of, just, just going back to the 80s for a minute or to all of the needless sequels that have happened after that. But I mean, the first Terminator, Arnold was the bad guy, right? He was this death machine, just killing everybody, terrifying, awful. And if you watch like a marathon back-to-back movies, what's going to happen? You're like, you're like falling asleep, you're like, oh man, Arnold's the bad guy. And then you wake up a couple movies later, you're like, why is he saving everybody? I'm so confused, what is happening? That's exactly what happened with Saul of Tarsus. That's exactly what went on. I mean, he was the villain. He was the enemy. He was the one everybody was running from. And then all of a sudden he gets, has a little run-in with, with the better John Connor, Jesus Christ. And he gets, he gets reprogrammed, repurposed, and unleashed on this mission to save people. And the followers of Jesus, they could not believe it said, when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the followers of Jesus. This is Acts 9.26. You can check it out on the screen. But they were afraid of him. And they did not believe that he was a disciple. He has this run-in with Jesus. And Jesus runs him down on that road to Damascus. And he blows him off his horse. And all of a sudden, he's like, he's like you are the boss. You're the, you're the king of the ring. I, I say, uncle, I tap I tap out, and he gets unleashed on this mission to preach about Jesus, the one he'd formerly been persecuting. Later on in Acts, he gets a little name change. You know, celebrities do it all the time, don't they? It's like if if your name is Reginald Dwight, you become Elton John. If you're Elizabeth Woolridge Grant. No, 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 it's Lana Del Rey. Yes, and my personal favorite by far, when you're Tahid Eeps, you become two chains. Because that's a name, right? That's like a good name on the birth certificate. I mean, you having that on your ID, oof, gangster. But he has a, he has a brand change. He changes his name from Saul. It becomes Paul, which means little. Because Paul was short. (laughs) It's fantastic. And that becomes the new name that he goes by. It's almost like the witness relocation program, except this witness ain't going into hiding. He's going public. And so he's out there just just letting this, this message loose. It's like if a leader of ISIS got saved. I mean, this guy who'd been terrorizing people, dragging people out of their homes. He's now preaching the very message that they once preached. And the man who at one time would stop at nothing to kill Christians will one day close his life being killed as a Christian. 
Because that's what Jesus does. He turns persecutors into preachers. He turns murderers into messengers. He turns enemies into advocates. And Paul, he becomes the strongest advocate for the gospel. And then we don't have time to really get into it, but if you look at the historical case for Christianity, any historian in their right mind acknowledges that Paul was a real guy, and his conversion is one of the rowdiest proofs that Jesus really is back from the dead. But he writes with Timothy, Timothy, our brother. Now, Timothy was this half-breed, half-Jewish, half-Greek. His dad probably bailed on him, bounced on him, had a little one-night stand with his mom. And he would be an outcast, like so many people in this generation raised in a single-parent home. But he meets Paul, this former Pharisee, who would want nothing to do with Greek people, and he finds a father. He finds a role model. He finds a father figure. And this person who would have been an outcast, who would have just been, you know, just one of the kids, you know, I don't know, getting into trouble, whatever, wasting his life, maybe end up locked up one day. Instead, we're reading about him millenniums later. Yeah, that's what happened with Timothy. That's what happens when you meet Jesus. That's what went on. And Paul was a former Pharisee, and the fact that he's caught dead hanging out with Timothy, it just lets us know that Jesus, he can take the prejudice from your eyes so that you start to see potential in people. He saw potential in Timothy. That's what the love of God does. But he writes, look with me, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, Paul never went to Colossae himself, but the gospel spread up there because it was so explosive. It was taking names. It spread up there. And there's this situation arising where Epaphras runs all the way to Rome to inform Paul about it, saying that there's heresy taking root. That there's problems creeping in. That, that these Christians are failing. They're, they're kind of they're bailing out on the gospel. They're being disloyal. They're letting something else creep into the ring. They're letting these rivals get in the cage. And the gospels, it, it, these Christians, they're, they're really not believing all that well. But he calls them saints. Okay, that's what holy people means. And we sang the word holy earlier. And, and just for people who are new to church, we want to be a church where, where people, you don't have to know anything about the Bible. You don't have to be some nerd, some word nerd. You can be welcome here, all right? But the word holy, we sang it earlier. It just means on a whole different level, <laughs> on a whole different level, just set apart, different, a different purpose, a different mission, a different way of doing everything. And he's saying, hey, you're saints. You're set apart. You're God's holy people. But they were failing. They were being unfaithful. How does he call them faithful brothers? I'll tell you what, it's because he says they're in Christ. They're in Christ. Time magazine once released an article talking about the long, long road to sainthood. And how to become a saint, quote unquote, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have to have been martyred. You have to perform miracles or start a monastery. And and that after you die, your body has to perform miracles. And then there has to be these years of deliberation where finally a council decides, yes, that person is a saint. I'm sorry, but the, the Bible speaks a different word. The Bible says you're a saint the moment you're in Christ. 
And that being a saint ain't about how good you've been. It's about who you're in. It's not about how good you've been. It's about who you're in, who your trust is in. And you may have had a week that's been a disaster. You may have failed and fumbled this week. Maybe you, you, you completely fell horribly flat on your face as a believer. Maybe this week you've been failing. You've totally just gone off the rails and sinned. Hey, I need you to know that if you're in Christ, you're a saint. You're beloved, you're adopted, you're accepted. That, that he sees you in the faithfulness of Christ. And I'm not a saint because of who I am. I'm a saint because of who I'm in. And you're a saint too because we're in Christ. And it's his good that's on our account, not our own good. It's, it's as if his bio gets placed over our bio. And that's how God views you. And you need to start living You need to start living according to the good God's given you, not the guilt of what you've given into. See, the key to changing is living according to the good God's given you, not the guilt of what you've given into. How in the world is Paul the Apostle able to preach? He used to kill Christians. If anybody could have nightmares and regrets and stress about their past, it was Paul. But he had this radical encounter. It's the the, the first thing he really says in his greeting. He says, grace. He writes grace to them. And grace, it erases your past. It it puts it behind you. It, It gives you freedom to move forward into what God's called you to. And that's exactly what happens with Paul. And that's what needs to happen among us. Next thing you could write down is that hope up there shakes things down here. Hope up there shakes things down there. It says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. The faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, which you've already heard in this message of the gospel. You know what? First thing he does, he gives thanks. And I think we ought to be thankful. You know, if you take grace for granted, it'll be taken away. And we've experienced a lot of grace here at Reason Church. I don't know if you know this, but, but throughout the, just the brief time, we're only six weeks into this thing, but we've seen people meet Jesus almost every week. We've seen marriages that are, that are having cataclysmic shifts already begin to happen. I'm getting messages and emails from people in other states who are watching the message archives and giving their lives to Christ. We're having people in, in, in Arizona, California watching these things. And you know what? We should be giving thanks just like Paul gave thanks. We can't take this thing for granted. We got to be all in on it. We got to be thankful for what God's doing amongst us. We can't just let it be cheap. We have to appreciate it. Now, Malcolm Gladwell, he wrote a book called The Tipping Point. In it, he talks about how uh, trends, they tend to spread almost like contagious diseases. And that there are these infectious people who unleash trends and there are these super connectors and these mavens and they just get the word out like no one else. That was Paul. That was Paul. Paul was contagious. 
He was taking names. He was blowing up. The gospel was trending on every feed. It was like a virus that was spreading throughout Asia Minor. He never even made it up to Colossae. But this, he meets the suit of Paphras, and, and it's just this guy is just set on fire, about blazing red, wildfire spreading throughout all of Asia Minor. And let me just tell you, you know, it, it should be like the Ebola virus. That's what the gospel is supposed to, to be like. It should be contagious, powerful, where people come in contact with it. It's just amazing. Like like swine flu, like World War Z, like zombie apocalypse. It should be something that's just infectious, contagious. You get around somebody and you better watch out because it's going to spread. Our Christian lives aren't supposed to be sterile and lifeless and bland and, and, and nothing's really shaking things up. I mean, if it's not spreading at all, if there's no activity... If there's no life, if we don't see anything, it kind of makes us wonder if we really appreciate what this message is. He says that it's abounding, it's spreading, it's bearing fruit everywhere since the day you heard it. That it was spreading in the same way it's growing throughout the whole world. These Gnostics wanted it to be limited. They wanted this message to be in quarantine. To be this little elite group who in their seminaries, they learn these little things. And, oh, they, they have the real truth and they have this perfect plan. And, 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 and you know, the, the, these just elite group. But you know what? The gospel is supposed to be for the everyman. It's supposed to be out amongst the people. It's supposed to be spreading. I, I actually met with this pastor and, and, and I'm sure he met well, you know. And I understand in the context of what he was saying. I get it. But he was saying, you know, you shouldn't be in this city thinking like you're going to take back the city. You're going to change the city. You know, don't be saying like the things like that. It just seems arrogant. And I, and I know what he meant, and I, and I understand the, the idea of, of arrogance, but I can tell you arrogance and confidence aren't the same thing. And if you believe God will never do anything significant through you, you just might prove yourself right. If you believe God will never do anything significant through you, you just might prove yourself right. But I read a Bible that says things like 2 Chronicles 16.9 that says, The eyes of the Lord sweep to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for loyal hearts to show himself strong on their behalf. I believe that God is an equal opportunity employer. I believe that the only one who can thwart you is you. The only one who can limit what God does through Reason Church are the people standing in this building. The Bible says, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And in that context, it's talking about reaping, sowing with your finances. That's something you can do. But, it, but that, that metaphor is used constantly. You know what? And I kind of think, instead of sowing like this, what we ought to do at Reason Church is be sowing a little more like this. <laughs> I think that's what it got to be like. That's what it ought to be like. If we want to make this thing contagious, we want to make it infectious, how much are you willing to post on your social media? You want people to come to church? You want to see chairs full? Well, who are you talking about? Are you taking the impetus? Are you taking the initiative? Are you willing to speak up? You want to see people meet in Jesus? He's an equal opportunity employer. His eyes are going to and fro throughout the whole earth. He wants loyal hearts. He wants to move. He's not reluctant. He's eager to answer. 
the question is, are we going to rise up? Are we willing to rise to the occasion? Are we willing to have those conversations? The only person who can thwart you is you. Now, part of what Paul gets so stoked about in this text isn't just that the gospel's blowing up, but it's that it's producing specific things. It's producing faith and love but that are springing up If you look at the text, we throw that back up there. It says that springing up from the the hope that is reserved for us or stored for us in heaven. Now this whole idea of hope, kind of some people seems like pie in the sky. It's hope of heaven. It's not very popular in our day and age, is it? I mean, the word secular actually comes from the Latin word that means the present. Live in the now. Oh, I feel like if I start thinking about that afterlife, I'm going to miss out on this life. I mean, can we pretend like it's 2013 for a second and say it all together? YOLO, right? (laughs) All right, let's say it, 2013. YOLO, right? That's the mindset. I mean, that wasn't that long ago. I think, I think people still believe the same thing, right? It's like, you only live once. This is it. This is the age. This is, this is the time where, you know, you, you just got to give it everything you got. Party hardy. Live high on the hog. Go crazy. I got to sow my wild oats. I got I to get turned. <laughs> I got to get lit. That, 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 that's, that's the way people approach life so often. But let me ask you this question. If our origin is meaningless, we just came from nothing, there's no God, we just arose out of the chaos of the universe from some ancient cosmic explosion, and our destiny has no meaning, there's nothing after this. One day the universe is just going to collapse in on itself all over again. One day our sun's going to burn out, everything's going to go cold and dead and lifeless If where we come from is meaningless and where we're going is meaningless, how can we think the middle's got any meaning? You know what a lot of people's answer is? Their answer is, don't think about it. But some people do think about it. I think an honest atheist would think about it. Jean-Paul Sartre was a French philosopher, the father of modern existentialism, and he said this, life has no meaning the moment you lose the illusion of being eternal. He wrote in a different work, he said, I exist, that is all, and I find it nauseating. That's how a lot of people live, but it doesn't have to be that way because there's hope stored up for us in heaven, and it's not this empty optimism, it's a living hope that Jesus is back from the dead We want to give this city a reason to live for. Can we celebrate that together? A reason to live for. It's what people are looking for. He says that that love and faith spring forth out of this hope that's stored for us in heaven. But this hope isn't hope like, oh, I hope I get to go to heaven. I hope I make it in. I hope they let me into the club like Night at the Roxbury. It's like, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Baby, don't, right? It's like, and then the bouncer throws you out. You're like, dang it. 
No, 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 no. That word stored for us in heaven, it's the Greek word that means reserved. You have a reservation. God has saved you a seat. Will you accept the invitation? You've got the reservation. Will you accept the invitation? And when you have that hope that, man, he just gave us seats. He just, he just bought the place out. It's, it's, it's first come, first serve. Anybody's in. When you have that hope, it produces love because you start to realize that life is short, eternity is long, and the only thing that lasts forever is relationships. It produces love. That's, that, that's, that's what happens. And, and the people who live the YOLO lifestyle, I mean, the people who have success, achieve everything they want to achieve, don't they so often end up isolated, estranged from the people who are closest to them? Don't we read about the divorces and these huge, huge fights and these children who don't even talk to their parents? The, the lifestyle of just living now, it's not the key. The Bible really teaches that it's eternal life there, abundant life here. Eternal life there, abundant life here. Jesus, he's got a reservation. I threw a huge dinner party at a museum back in my hometown. And as I was coordinating with the museum and I was paying for it, booking this place out, they always ask one question. They always ask this, how many people are you expecting? How many people are you expecting? Let me tell you this. Jesus paid the price. Are we going to pack the place? He paid the price. Are we going to pack the place? He paid the price. Are we going to pack the place? See, he's booked out heaven. He's got this room. He's paid for it at the cross. He's paid for it by the blood of Jesus. The question is, are we going to get in on it? Are we willing to put aside the awkwardness and say, you know what, I'm going to invite you to a church. You might be a skeptic. I got a church where skeptics are welcome. You might be a non-believer. Hey, you may have had a bad experience. We want to give people a good experience. You might have been burnt by church. You might have been hurt by the church. Sunday morning. We got a church for those kinds of people. Come on with me. He paid the price. Are we going to pack the place? He paid the price. Are we going to pack the place? He paid the price. Are we going to pack the place? We got a reservation. How about we start giving out some invitations? The last thing as we shut this thing down is when you've caught what's been taught, it will always show. When you've caught what's been taught, it will always show. Look with me in verse 6. It says, since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace, you learned it from Epaphras. That's one of Paul's bros who got saved in Ephesus and brought the gospel to Colossae. It says, our dear fellow servant who's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also told us of your love in the Spirit. What do you think about God? Do you think God is harsh? Do you think God is controlling? Do you think God's just out to ruin you and rule you? Is that what his reign is all about? The late Christopher Hitchens, the notorious atheist evangelist, wrote for Vanity Fair magazine, just said he was on a crusade, a campaign to snuff out religion. He said this, he said, God is a celestial dictator. He's a cosmic tyrant. He's 
the Kim Jong-un in the clouds. Well, kind of got to change the record a little bit. I don't think Chris Hitchens was reading the same Bible I'm reading. (laughs) Because he says that the Colossians truly understood that he was a God of grace. A God of grace. Grace is showing someone kindness who does not deserve it. What does that mean? It means that God blessed us when he should have cursed us. That God promoted us when he should have fired us. That God married us when he should have ended it a long time ago. That God saved us when he should have judged us. What dictator do you know who's like that? He's the God of grace. And when you really appreciate the price Christ paid for people, you inevitably begin to value people. Epaphras brought back word that when Jesus rules in your ring, you begin to look like he looks. See, leaders always reflect their followers, or followers always reflect their leaders. And if God's a God of grace, then we should be people of love. If God's a God of grace, we should be people of love. And love is such a trite word sometimes. I mean, it can seem so cliche, can't it? In all honesty, it's like, you just hear it all the time. It's so Christianese, it's so sentimental, it's so mushy. What does it mean? It means this, invest in people. Spend time with people. Value people. Make people feel important. Make people feel big instead of making them feel small. That's what love is. I mean, I can say I love Bay all day, but if I don't spend any time with her, or oh, that's not my wife, whoa, <laughs> awkward. <laughs> if I don't spend any time with her, if I don't spend any money on her, if I, if I don't spend anything on her, she's going to start to wonder if she really is before anyone else. <laughs> In love amongst Christians, in love to the world, it looks the same way. If you love people, spend some time with people. If you love people, make people feel important. If you love someone, you'll look around the room. I mean, you can't love someone just looking at the back of your head. Meet somebody. If you love people, they're going to feel it. They're going to know what it's like. When Jesus said he loved us, he didn't just say it. He showed it by the grace he gave us and the sacrifice he made for us. And if we love people, they're going to feel it. What I'm really wanting you to grasp, what I want you to understand is essentially this. I want Reason Church to take some names. I want this church to spread. I want it to be infectious. I want you posted on your gram. We made it easy. It's on the Reason Church website. I want you handing out invites. I want you talking to people. Why? Why do I want Reason Church to take some names? Because we know the name that is above every name. And followers always look like their leader. The reason why I want Reason Church to grow is because... He's a good king. He's a good ruler. He ain't no tyrant. 
He's the God of grace. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords, Lord of the ages. He's the author of life. He's the ruler of existence. He's the name that is above all names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. He's our reason. He's our reason. He's the name. He's the name. Stand to your feet. Get up in here. Get up in here. He's our love. He's our life. Let it rain. Surrender. 